0: The Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk today with Oakland County Executive Dave Coulter on the heels of his State of the County speech. We'll talk about his plans for Michigan's second largest county over the next year. Oakland is experiencing quite a bit of political and demographic change, and that's leading to some policy differences as well. We'll discuss with Coulter, and he'll take your calls as well. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR.
1: Detroit Today is supported by the Michigan School of Psychology and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History.
0: Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and... Really glad you decided to join us. If you're looking for a place that's undergoing a lot of demographic or political change here in the state of Michigan, I think you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find some place experiencing more of that than Oakland County. Just drive up and down the Woodward Corridor, which is the spine of Michigan's second-largest and wealthiest county. You see Black Lives Matter signs lining the streets of places like Royal Oak. Democratic representatives like Haley Stevens and Mallory McMorrow are supported by women-led activist groups in places like Birmingham and Clawson. If you grew up here in the 70s, 80s, the way I did, these are really shocking developments. Since around 2016, in fact, the majority of Oakland voters have been casting their ballots for Democrats at the local, the state, and the national level. And you can see the results of that in the county's majority Democrat board of commissioners and the Democratic county executive. You can also see it in some real policy shifts. county voted for millage to expand public transit. It has used federal dollars to build more affordable housing and expand homeless shelters. And it has helped add mental health co-responders to local police departments. But of course, there are still challenges. The resident population is aging quickly in Oakland. uh, The county is struggling to retain young people and a lack of public transit and a shrinking housing supply are keeping newcomers out of the area to some degree. How does Oakland County plan to tackle these issues? Last night, Dave Coulter, the county executive, talked about what his plans are for the next year in Oakland County. He addressed many of those issues, laid out plans for dealing with all of the change that's happening in, again, Michigan's second largest county. I'm really glad to have him here with us in the studio today to talk about that speech, to talk about Oakland, its changes, and its challenges. Dave Coulter, welcome back to Detroit Today.
2: Stephen, I'm really glad to be with you, in person too, which is really nice. (laughs) That's right. We're getting back to this idea of People
0: coming into the studio here rather than just being on the phone. It's different to look into someone's face and ask questions than it is uh, (laughs) to hear just their voice. So I I do want to start here. uh, You know, you you talked about a lot of different policy areas, and I want to get to as many of them as we can. But one of the ones uh, that really stood out to me was jobs. And In your speech last night, you talked about Oakland County helping people get jobs, regardless of their criminal history. Um, I want to play just a little bit uh, of your speech and then have you talk about uh, why this is important.
2: We're also broadening our workforce by ensuring that individuals with a nonviolent conviction on their record have a clean slate, a second chance These cases on average are over 20 years old. They include things like shoplifting and driving offenses, minor marijuana possession. We shouldn't let mistakes like this define someone's future.
0: Uh, Talk about why uh, Oakland County needs to do this and why uh, from your standpoint, this is an important part of not just job fairness, but overall equity in the county.
2: Yeah, uh, I think it hits both of those things. So I appreciate you framing it that way because number one, our employers need employees, right? And so we've got these folks out there that, because of these nonviolent, uh, you know, convictions in the past, uh, have had a hard time and barriers getting back into the workforce and so that's a problem from an economic standpoint but it also i talked a lot last night about our values and about being inclusive and about being a county where everybody has an opportunity to succeed and if you've paid your debt to society and you've you know you've you, you've done what you needed to do there then we welcome you back and i think that's just uh... needs to be part of the kind of place that we are a welcoming place for everyone who's done what they need to do and wants to participate and have a have a community and a place to live where they can thrive yeah Uh,
0: that that really does dovetail into uh, a discussion about the changing nature and face of Oakland County it's not the place as I said in the open uh, that it was when I grew up here in the 70s and 80s it wasn't uh, like this for um for a lot longer than that in fact um uh, talk about those changes and and the way they continue to i guess challenge leadership your leadership the commission's leadership to deal with things in a different way than they than they did before
2: yeah uh that's a great question because the demographics have changed although not as much i think as some people think it's just that in the past we didn't talk about it as much. Uh, you know, we, it, there was this, this monolithic view of Oakland County as this rich, white, successful place to be. But there was diversity. So one of the things I've tried to do is just lift that up and acknowledge it. But it has changed. Look at a, look at a community like Troy. When I was growing up, you and I were about the same age. When I was growing up, that was about as, uh, you know, uh, vanilla a community <laughs> as you could imagine. Mm-hmm. And today it's almost 30% foreign-born residents. And I don't think there's anyone who would argue that they haven't contributed to the vibrancy and the vitality and the success of Troy. And so part of my responsibility, I feel, is to lift up those voices. Novi, Farmington Hills, the same way, foreign-born residents and others who have come there and contributed and and started businesses and, and, and send their kids to the local schools and have really contributed to the success of Oakland County. And and, and I've tried to lift that up.
0: Uh, I, I want to go back to the proposal uh, and the program to to look past people's uh, criminal history and and push you just a little about the distinction between violent and nonviolent offenders. Uh, a, a lot of folks who are talking about criminal justice reform say that that's the that's the real rub, right? Uh, it, it is easier, of course, to convince people to look past nonviolent uh, offenses, but violent offenders also
2: uh often need a second chance uh where, where do you stand with that yeah I, I mean that's a great point and the the rules for our program are for nonviolent offenders just because there are certain types of jobs that i that i think employers are more uncomfortable with and and it does give people a level of comfort but you're right if, if the goal is and I, I think it is to make sure that everyone who has uh you know um completed their penance, if you will, for for their past offenses, uh, then we need to find a place for them. And so um, ultimately it could be in a program like this, but in, in some way, uh, you know, I, I don't want to exclude anyone, frankly. Yeah. yeah. So um,
0: you have put a lot of money toward affordable housing and uh, homeless shelters. That's bumping up against current zoning laws. Uh, it's really hard to build when most of the land is zoned for single family only housing, which is still true in in, in Oakland. Uh, so talk about the plans to try to, I guess, change those zoning laws, how you encourage cities uh, to do that and, and how we remove that barrier from, again, something that, that really demands the county's attention.
2: Yeah, well, the first thing is to make people know that even in a wealthy county like Oakland, People are housing insecure, 43% uh, of our our residents are housing burdened, right? They spend more than 30% of their income on housing costs. So it is an issue across the county. Now... I used to be a mayor, so zoning laws are at the city level, not the county level. But one of the, our strategies is to put these funds forward, uh, both in our housing trust, the additional funds we're doing, the new land bank that we we're creating, um, to incentivize developers and make it attractive to them. I can't force a local community to change their zoning laws or be more welcoming, but what we can do is to incent the developers to find these parcels uh, and develop these properties. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I also want To talk about transit, of course, Uh, that was a big millage uh, during the midterm elections. It passed and it really does pave the way for pretty big expansion, I think. Uh, Talk about what the rollout of that expanded public transit is
2: going to look like. I couldn't be more excited about any initiative that I've done than that. one. When I, when I campaigned for office for the first time for a county commission in 2002, I was talking about transit. And all these years later, we're still talking about it. So I think our voters took a really important first step, which is to make the entire county all in on this system. And it doesn't get us totally to where we need to be. But as I said last night, it really changes the narrative about what's possible. Because I think one of the things I discovered when I took over this job was there's almost a defeatist attitude of we're just never going to be able to do it. It's too difficult. It's, the, the region won't come together. The people will never support it. And I think that was an important first step in changing the narrative of what is possible and what people were willing to support, even in communities uh, that in the past... Auburn Hills and Rochester Hills and Novi had not supported it. The, it. the 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 millage passed in all of those communities. And so I hope it sh- shows their local leaders and others that there really is a desire among the residents of Oakland County to have a more vibrant and comprehensive transit system.
0: Yeah, we're talking with uh, Dave Coulter. He is the Oakland County Executive, delivered his State of the County speech yesterday. We're talking about that speech, we're talking about the issues he laid out in the speech and the issues that challenge Oakland County as the county continues to change. If you want to join the conversation, if you've got a question for Dave Coulter or live in Oakland County and want to talk about some of these issues, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Today. And uh, we can work you into the, we can work you into the conversation. Uh, I noticed last night that Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan was in attendance. Uh, talk about the relationship you're trying to cultivate with Detroit and how that's changed since you became uh, county executive.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I didn't have a personal relationship with the mayor before I got this job, but I thought it was my responsibility and my desire, frankly, to build relationships not only with the mayor of Detroit, but the Wayne County and the Macomb County executives to make sure that we kept the line of communication open, that we built a certain trust, because a number of the issues that I face as Oakland County executive, they don't, they don't end at 8 Mile or, or DeQuinder or the other artificial boundaries that we have. And so I know that there's going to be times, and there have been times, when we need to work together. So, yeah, I think I think all four of us, frankly, have done a pretty decent job of, of um, trying to to again, change the narrative of how to work together in the region. I was at the mayor's uh, state of the city uh, last week and was uh, uh, happy to be there. And I was uh, pleased that he was there last night. Just, you know, I, I think it sends a signal that we, we, we talk to each other. I I, I text him. We, we, we call regularly. I ask him for advice. We talk about issues. I think I think it's important because, as I've said before, uh, the Metro Detroit region uh, is in competition with other regions across the country. We're not, we shouldn't be in competition with each other here. It, it, it's a self-defeating kind of strategy.
0: Yeah. So uh, speaking of uh, cooperation across counties here. Uh, you know, that takes us back to transit, I think, uh, pretty strongly. In your speech last night, you joked a little uh, with Mark Hackle, who's uh, the Moko Macomb County Executive, uh, about the difference between the two of you when it comes to advocating for, for regional transit. I'm not going to say that Mark doesn't support regional transit. Mm-hmm. He, he does, but but he has some things that, that he's not as enthusiastic about as uh, some of the other regional leaders. What do we need to do to Now that Oakland has voted big to embrace uh, public transit, that removes a pretty big barrier. How do we make this a more regional approach? How do we get back to this idea of regional transit? Uh, The RTA is now almost 15 years old, I think, in terms of when we passed it. We don't have a whole lot to show for it.
2: Yeah, and that's frustrating, although I'm meeting with the RTA leaders in a couple of weeks and we're going to have this conversation. I'm continuing to have conversations with uh, Wayne County and the mayor and and Mark and anybody that wants to talk to me about it, because I still remain committed to a regional transit system that makes sense. Um, and if there's parts of the Region that want to participate. If there's parts that don't, um, I guess I'm all about let's move forward. And so, one of the things I've tried to do, and this is what we did last November, is uh, rather than put a big, audacious uh, map on top of the entire region—a one-size-fits-all plan that 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 you know that, that everyone has to build into—let let's start taking some steps there. We took a step in Oakland County, but I think you'll start to see us take other steps. And it might not be that final uh, master grand plan. But I believe that if we build momentum and progress uh, in increments, perhaps, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm older now, so I'm a little <laughs> more patient than I used to be. I understand that these, these steps are important to build momentum, to build buy-in, and, and to build progress. And so uh, I think you'll continue to see us do that. Certainly the conversations are still continuing. Okay,
0: when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dave Coulter. He is the Oakland County Executive. We're talking about his State of the County speech delivered yesterday. We want to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313 577 1019 is the number. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work the end of the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for tuning in. Our guest right now is David Coulter. He is the Oakland County Executive. He delivered his State of the County speech yesterday, uh, addressing a number of policy issues and challenges there in Michigan's second largest county. Uh, we're talking with him about uh, what he plans to do over the next 12 months. Uh, also want to hear from you on the phones and on social, Three one three. is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to uh, Twitter and hashtag us. Uh, Let's read a couple of social comments before we get to the phones. Uh, Dave uh, says, don't wait for the RTA. Start planning a 10-minute frequency BRT route, bus rapid transit, on Woodward from Pontiac to downtown Detroit with dedicated lanes. Get rid of the loop in Pontiac and reconnect, rebuild the downtown, connect Metro Parks via public transit, make smart transit center accessible. Davis, uh, one of our listeners who's really, really enthusiastic about uh, transit. What do you think of those ideas, uh, Dave Coulter? Are we closer to getting some of those things?
2: And uh, I follow him on Twitter, so I know he's passionate. I love my transit <laughs> advocates, and so thanks for listening. Uh, yeah, I think we are. I think, uh, you know, when you, when you think about expanded transit services, Woodward is a natural. Um, I, I, I tend to believe that if we, you know, we talk about doing this in steps, one step would be sort of Pontiac to downtown Detroit to the airport. Downtown and the airport are probably the two biggest destinations that I think people in Oakland County would want to get to. So, you know, that would, that would certainly be a goal. Um, so I don't disagree with anything David said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Big Neo on
0: Twitter asks whether there's a plan to address cities like Auburn Hills that opt out of smart buses, which cuts off residents. My my understanding of the of the legislation or the millage that passed uh, is that we did get rid of opt out communities in Oakland County. I think that was a huge part of. Uh, why that was such an important step, but Dave, I'll, I'll let you address it too.
2: That's exactly right. Uh, about a year ago, Auburn Hills wanted to opt out of Smart, but this millage sort of overrode that, and the voters said, "No, we want every community uh, in Oakland County to participate." By the way, including the voters in that community, who overwhelmingly, I think fifty-seven, fifty-eight percent, said that they wanted to be continue to be part of Smart. Yeah, uh,
0: I want to play another a clip from your speech and then talk uh, a little about politics and uh, the divide that exists in American politics. You you had a really interesting take uh, on that last night. Let's listen.
2: You know, it seems like we used to worry that our political system was broken. Our elected officials too partisan and their rhetoric too heated. We called on the red and the blue to work together and for politicians to stop fighting all the time. But I'm afraid we can no longer simply blame politics. The problems afflicting our country are impacting every aspect of our lives now. And I believe it's time for us to take responsibility ourselves.
0: Take responsibility ourselves. Uh, Talk about why you felt it was important to include that that I think really moving uh, part in your speech yesterday.
2: Thanks. That was a you know that was a different kind of speech for me. And um, but it, but it's what was on my heart, and I really wanted to say, which is I know we're in polarizing times, and I know that there's a lot of angst and chaos, and and it can seem overwhelming. But each of us individually have a role to play if we w- are willing to claim it uh, in. Breaking down these barriers, taking down the temperature of the rhetoric, uh, and that it starts with us. And I, I know that's sort of simple, and I I I wanted it not to come across as sort of hokey, and I, I hope it didn't. But what, what I what I ultimately tried to get to is we all have certain values, values that we share, frankly, you know, of respect um, and inclusion and gratitude and community. And and if we focus on those things and working on those things together, and we and we do these plans with those values, those common values values in mind, then maybe we can move past what is not just political rhetoric, but has become social uh, rhetoric as well. And by the way, so at the end, I gave out uh, challenge coins, right? And, and I gave everybody in the audience a cha- an Oakland County challenge coin. It has those values on it. I have one for you, Stephen. Huh? Um, Look at that. But I, I wanted it to be a reminder that it, it, it does, you don't have to be in government. Whatever you do, where, where, wherever you work, uh, whatever families you're in- you know try to find those common connections and Stephen I know you you know this because you and uh Nolan Finley with the civility work that you do that's that's what I'm getting at. Let's remember our common humanity and try to and try to t- turn the other temperature down a little bit yeah so uh
0: I also want to talk about um something that we had, uh, f- current Ferndale mayor, Melanie Piana in, uh, to talk about a few weeks ago, uh, some of the work she's doing. And I think this does, uh, align with what you were just talking about this idea of finding common connections. But part of the way that she's doing that is by trying to confront some of the things, uh, historically and in, in sort of current times that, that, divide us, that that make things inequitable and, and harder for some folks. And you were the mayor of Ferndale before uh, she was, so you're familiar with some of the things that she's bumping up against. But I wonder from the county executive chair, what that looks like in other communities and whether you feel like you have a role to play in encouraging that kind of exploration, encouraging that kind of, you know, confrontation really of Our past, our divided past, as a way to to leading to
2: uh, a more unified future. Yeah. Um, thanks. I, you know, I, I love Mayor Piana. I served with her for a number of years when I was there. She was on council, and so we're of like mind on this. So, uh, the first new position I created when I became county executive was a DEI officer, mm-hmm. and you know, a lot that gets a lot of pushback these days, and people are trying to call it woke or whatever they want to call it. But it's really, really important that the work that you do is equitable, and that, like, when I talk about our values, I'm not trying to whitewash the past or forget about the past. It's important to remember with the past, how we've got to the, where we're at uh, in order to move forward. But through this DEI work, I, I gave an example of it last work of, of how it can be so powerful. Oakland County is, is a great at economic development and business development. Ninety-five uh, percent of our businesses are small businesses, but we also know that there's gaps If you look at the data and you look at it right, uh, uh, getting support to women-owned, minority-owned and veteran-owned businesses, they're they're gaps. They need different resources and different kinds of support. And so I I, I said that we're going to be intentional in our small business development group to really – try strategies in those areas that directly affect the issues that they're having and, and to confront them and to analyze them and to, to try to move past. So, so that's a way that you can actually move this DEI work, this equity work into economic development. And I think, you know, the reason I have that position and it reports to me, it's not an HR, it's not buried somewhere, it reports to me is because I want to make sure that every program and every service uh, that we provide, we look at it through this lens of does everyone have the same kind of access to the services that we're providing.
0: And uh, you, you talked about there being some pushback uh, to the idea of that, that role, and uh, I would imagine some of the issues that, that it brings up. Uh, how do you navigate that? I mean, I think that is one of the things that's toughest, is when you make that decision, make that commitment, sticking by it, making sure that it survives these kinds of doubts or, or, or challenges that come from folks. Yeah.
2: So many of these issues, that's just one, but others as well come to mind that they get politicized, right? I mean, I brought up Ukraine last night. If, 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 if I'd have brought that up a year ago, I'd have got a standing ovation last night. It was a little bit more muted. Right? Now, yeah. Yeah. And I noticed that because, uh, in our politics now, uh, the former president and the governor of Florida are now taking a position that maybe we shouldn't be involved in Ukraine. And suddenly it's become this partisan issue, but same with DEI. It, it you know, I think people understood the intent when we rolled that out. Out and now people are trying to use that as some kind of wokeness or something I mean yeah I have to be cognitives of that but I, I feel like it's my responsibility to continue to stand up and, and talk about it and if people want to take shots they can but I can I can go to sleep at night knowing that uh, my intentions are, are to a- advance uh, progress in my county and to have these conversations in a, in a real way and uh, you know I, I, I can't control how they'll get used politically
0: Yeah. Okay, uh, Dave Coulter, Oakland County Executive, always great to talk with you, Uh, great to have you here uh, today, and uh, congratulations on your State of the County speech yesterday. Great to be with you, Stephen. Thanks for having me. We're going to take another quick break. We're going to stay on the topic of politics when we come back, and we're going to listen to a conversation that WDET's Russ McNamara had. With former Congressman Andy Levin about his electoral loss and what he is up to today. Also, remember that you can always support WDET at WDET.org. We are a listener supported uh, radio station, and your contributions make you part of the community here at WDET. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. After years of working in organized labor, Andy Levin spent four years as a member of Congress in the U.S. House of Representatives. His defeat in the primary last August snapped a four-decade run by the Levin family, In Congress, Levin's father, Sander, served in the House for 36 years, and his uncle Carl was a six-term U.S. senator. Recently, Andy sat down with WDET's Russ McNamara at a Southfield coffee shop to talk about Levin's electoral loss, what he's working on now, and how he thinks we should be navigating our toughest political challenges.
3: Last August primary between yourself and Haley Stevens. Uh, You ran in the same redistricted district and you lost. There was a ton of dark money that was pumped into your race, specifically against you, uh, and the money going towards Haley Stevens. A lot of that came from an APAC offshoot. APAC, of course, being a very powerful lobby uh, within Washington, D.C. and countrywide. As a Jewish man, did that hurt?
1: Well, I think it hurt our democracy. It hurt me personally to have that much money uh, spent against me. But I think there's a couple of big points about it, Russ. Number one, um, I think that we have to have in America an open debate about our policy towards our friend Israel. I'm a big backer of Israel, but... We cannot let dark money or any other money shut down. Look at what's happening in Israel today with the threats to democracy itself there, with the horrible violence that's happening. If we're Israel's best friend, we better be able to have an honest conversation here. And that dark money is aimed at shutting that down. They felt I was the most dangerous member of Congress because I was, I'm Jewish and I come from a prominent Jewish family and I was the most uh strong voice for saying we can be pro-israel and pro-palestinian we need peace we need to find a way to realize palestinian political and human rights in order to have a jewish state that's democratic and secure that's just true that's what i believe and it's a shame that so much dark money came in to try to shut that down there's a second piece about it though right yeah that was a Democratic primary, right? A great deal of the APAC money that came in was from Republicans, from Republican billionaires. And whether you're the Democratic Party, Republican Party, or some other party, you can't really let money come in from other parties to pick your candidates in your primaries or you've pretty much right. lost control of your political party. So that's something I think the Democratic Party needs to look at and look this time it was AIPAC. pack exxon mobil isn't dumb big pharma isn't dumb some of these other uh big interests that are hostile to the democratic party you're going to look and say hey why don't we pick the nominee from the republican side and the democratic side so it's something that's another element that i think this this dark money is so destructive to american politics in general mm-hmm. and i fought against it you know i was the author of the bill part of our overall hr1 package my bill was about Sunshine on corporate giving, uh, since we have this bad Citizens United decision from the Supreme Court, uh, at least make corporations tell their shareholders and thus the public what political spending they're doing. So there's a lot of work to be done in that area in general, and I'm afraid this APEC chapter was, you know, uh, a, a difficult exposure of one sordid aspect of
3: it. Does that make you more or less likely to run for office again?
1: I don't think it has any impact. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm 62. Uh, I served four years in Congress. It was fantastic. I loved it. Um, I hope I made some little contribution. The rest of my adult life, I've worked in the labor movement, the environmental movement, the human rights movement. I worked in the Clinton administration a little bit in the labor department. Um, I served with governor Granholm in the state here, uh, helping on job training and clean energy stuff. And so whether I, uh, ha- serve in the government again, I'm not sure, but I will, I'll be doing public service no matter what uh, to help the working people this country and to try to save this planet as we know it from the disastrous overheating that we're inflicting on it.
3: Because you obviously like voices like yours in Congress, is there any regret whatsoever about not sliding over to the, uh, the 10th Congressional District, uh, the one that John James narrowly won that mostly consisted of Macomb County?
1: Right, um, th- I don't regret it. I mean, my daughter Molly's still in high school here. She's going to graduate. I, it's just so important for me to be a present parent. That really comes first, you know. Carl Marlinga is from Macomb County. He so represents everything about Macomb County. He came close to winning that race, uh, so you know that's something that we have to obviously all look at in the future as Democrats. We want to win that seat back, but. Yeah. I'm. I'm right now. What I'm thinking about is, and here we are, just in the first quarter of 2023. How can I make the best contribution towards justice in America and all around the world? And so that's that's really what I'm focused on.
3: Yeah. What is the best way to do that? <laughs> uh, you're you're now working for the uh, Center for American Progress, and you've got other couple couple other gigs that you were already working yourself into. So is that the best use of your time as, as you see fit right now? Yeah,
1: no, I'm really happy. Um, I We did just announce that I'm uh, a distinguished senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. I'm going to be working there on a national basis and certainly focusing on Michigan on how to have a just economy, how to protect democracy at home and all around the world. There's. There's an amazing team there headed by uh, my friend Patrick Gaspard, who uh, has his own rich history. He was ambassador to South Africa. He was political director in the Obama White House. Mm -hmm. To me, he's a Haitian-American guy because I still am very involved in our policy towards Haiti. So we even talk about that. But they have a wonderful team there. I'm also uh, working in other ways. And here's what I'm focused on, Ross. Number one, we can't rebuild the middle class in this country unless we reduce the drastic income and wealth inequality. We need to do that. Several things about that, have a more just tax structure, not have child labor like we're seeing in the news right now. But probably the most fundamental thing we can do is to allow workers to form unions and bargain collectively in this country again to scale. We're down to 6% of private sector workers having a union at a moment when the public is wildly uh, favorable towards unions and almost half of non-union workers say they'd like to have one. What's the problem? Our labor laws are so skewed. So we've got to help all these workers at Starbucks and Amazon and Trader Joe's and REI and all these other companies who are organized. We've got to help them organize and then we have to help them try to get first contracts. 2023 is a crucial year. In 2022, almost 300 Starbucks organized. Right? Does one of those stores have a first contract? No. Does Howard Schultz intend on ever letting them? No. Would that happen in any other advanced industrialized country? No way. So we have to, and I'm involved in this and it's so fun, how can we strategize <laughs> to help them actually get a first contract, but along the way, help the American people see almost with something on the level of, say, Cesar Chavez's grape boycott. Mm-hmm. Not that it's a boycott, but what's the strategy for 2023 to help the American people realize, whoa, people at Starbucks, these young baristas who are organizing, if they can't even get a contract with their employer, what kind of economy do we have? We have to change that. People have to be able to have a little modicum of democracy in the workplace and, and get their little slice of the American dream. So I'm, I'm working on that.
3: Big time. Uh, How is that enforced, though? I mean, is is it the fault of the National Labor Relations Board, uh, or are we working off an old framework that doesn't totally outdated framework?
1: Yeah, totally outdated framework. And it's it's the National Labor Relations Board swings back and forth with the political winds way too much. Uh, The that started with Reagan, and you know, it's supposed to be the agency that enforces workers' rights, not enforces workers' rights when there's a Democratic president and helps employers violate workers' rights when there's a Republican president. Right. But still in all, as you point out, the framework itself is outdated and the playing field is so tilted against workers. Here's here's the actual labor law for the private sector. When workers form a union, what does the boss actually have to do? They have to show up several times at the bargaining table. They have to... Uh, make proposals. Do the proposals have to be in the realm of reasonable? Not at all. So Starbucks can literally come to the table and say, oh, we propose that you all make 20% less than you did before and nobody has health care. That's perfectly legal. Then they show up for a certain number of sessions and they say, oh, I guess we don't agree. We're declaring an impasse. They have legally, under the current law, under the National Labor Relations Act, they've discharged their duty to bargain. And now, if you dare to go on strike, they can permanently replace you. And that's the state of US right. labor. So effectively, workers don't really have rights. And that should highlight to everybody how brave these workers are across so many employers who are organizing anyway. And we're gonna have to come to some kind of a, of a crisis in our society where beyond just little talk in Washington, people realize, whoa, we really can't have a fair economy, a just economy, fairness for workers, and by the way, this disproportionately hurts women and workers of color, for sure. Uh, we can't tackle those issues unless we update this labor law mm-hmm. so that workers have, can just organize if they darn well please, so that when they do organize, they can get a first contract and so that they can support each other in their struggles, which they also aren't allowed to do now under federal law. So. To just give you one example of what the the PRO Act that we proposed and I I helped lead on in, in Congress would do, it has first contract mediation and binding arbitration so that within about seven months, workers would have a first contract every time. That works, that works for the American people and we've got to get to that point.
3: We're coming to a time where, and you alluded to the Gallup poll where support for unions is at the highest level in 50 years. We're also switching up the economy uh, and moving to greener pastures, greener jobs, uh, as it were. How much does that coincide with what you want to do in the future?
1: It's all about what I'm doing post-Congress. I mean, you may remember that before I ran for Congress, I created and ran a statewide market called Lean and Green Michigan, but it's based on pace or property assessed clean energy, a statute we passed right at the end of the Grand Home administration, it allows businesses and nonprofits to have a way to effectively finance clean energy makeovers of their buildings. Forty two percent of all the energy we use in the United States is to cool or heat and light our buildings, homes, businesses, factories, everything. And we can we could generally most buildings you can eliminate 35 percent of that Mm -hmm. of that energy use and of course then there's producing renewable energy lean and green michigan finances helps finance all that stuff in a way that is a perfect example of a really good kind of public private partnership the county typically or the city or township gets involved they put a property tax assessment on that building for the cost of the of the upgrade and then It cash flows for the owner of the building to do that. Right. We've done two hundred million dollars of that kind of financing in Michigan so far. Now, when I went to Congress, the ethics people said, "Give that to your, you know, leave that business." I I sold it to my wife for a dollar or whatever they told me was the appropriate way to do it. Mm -hmm. Now she's saying, "Hey, get back in here and help out." So she still owns it, but I'm definitely going to be working to expand that, and there are going to be a lot of fantastic projects this year. And then I'm especially though working at what you were getting at, the intersection of workers' rights, education, job training, all the things workers need with what needs to be a very rapid transition to a renewable energy economy. We've gotta make electric vehicles. We want to make them here in Michigan, we want them American-made, we want the darn batteries American-made, we want all those to be good union jobs. We need to put up way more renewable energy in the form of solar panels, onshore wind, offshore wind. Uh, we need more storage or you know, battery storage and other forms of storage. All this could be built with union labor, good jobs across many different unions. This could be a renaissance of rebuilding the middle class in America, but also, getting at our original sins of racism and realizing we can open up these opportunities to people who've too long been excluded. And you know, that's something I worked on way back when I was at the Department of Energy, Labor and Economic Growth and I ran the workforce system of this country. We had a senator from Illinois, you may have heard of him, his name was Barack Obama. <laughs> when, no, seriously, when he was a U.S. senator, he got a little thing passed uh, through Congress that allowed the states to use a half a percent of our safety loo money, our, I don't know why they call it that, but it's the money to construct highways, okay. to train the workforce of the future for highway construction, which was defined as women, people of color, and poor people. Boom. We used that money in Michigan to create training programs, we called one Road Construction Apprenticeship Readiness. We made a pre-apprenticeship programs to help those groups of people be able to test into apprenticeships to get those great jobs. We did it in other kinds of jobs. We, we should do that with this whole transition to a renewable energy economy.
3: You can't teach an old dog new tricks. and. You can teach an old teamster new tricks, but it's gonna cost you. Uh, like how do you reprogram like the current workforce into you know embracing a more green strategy? You more know, green an inclusive workforce. I'll tell you
1: what you make me think of, Russ. So when Jennifer Granholm won her second term and I came home to Michigan, she said, You have to help me figure out how to help all these unemployed people. You remember it was the Great Recession, we mm-hmm. had the highest unemployment. Michigan had the highest unemployment rate of any state for 49 consecutive months and those were the months that I was in charge of figuring out what to do with it and what we did was we created No Worker Left Behind that's what the program was called and we put 162,000 unemployed and underemployed Michiganders back to school why do I mention that because here's what people said to me Andy these people are in their late 20s 30s 40s even 50s they don't they don't want to go back to community college they'll be feel alienated from those young people who are so culturally different people said all those kind of things russ we had a waiting list for no worker left behind in every one of michigan's 83 counties people had a great time if you give them the support they need they had a great time going back it's not about necessarily getting a whole four-year degree or even a two-year degree a lot of people did that but people got the certificates. There might be an IT certificate they needed. Mm-hmm. There might be an advanced manufacturing program they could do. Tons of people went in health. The biggest of all was healthcare. 38%, I still remember the number of people in No Worker Left Behind, uh, were studying either in a certified nurse aide, uh, nursing track, you know, an LPN, RN other uh, uh, allied health professionals, all the techs. We mm-hmm. had x-ray techs and, and you know nuclear medicine techs and all those kind of people. And people went back and got the skills they needed to get a great middle class job in this state. And whether it's advanced manufacturing, IT, healthcare, we need all that even more right now. And to make this transition to renewable energy, a lot of people are going to need to get new skills, but we shouldn't be afraid of it. We should embrace it. And I think it's a little bit of a stereotype to think the workers themselves won't embrace it. They will, and they'll have a great life if we can help them, you know, give them the resources they need to get there.
3: We've heard a lot uh, over the last seven, eight years about making America great again. What I've heard from you so far is a lot of optimism. Do you still have that optimism? Like, even though you've transitioned into a, a different role, I guess.
1: Oh, I'm incredibly optimistic. The thing is this. We have to take very seriously how difficult the situation we are in is. It's difficult, Russ. Our democracy. (laughs) We came close to losing our democracy, and we better not fall asleep and think it can't happen, because it almost did, and it still could. We have to shore up our democracy in many ways. We have to shore up voting rights. We have to shore up access to the polls. We have to... Uh, make sure that people aren't taken off voting lists. We have to try to deal with all the dark money in politics. We have to make sure that people can't overturn the results of of elections where the voters make their choices. So that is very important, we have to do that. And also, I'm not Pollyannish about what a disaster we've gotten ourselves into by continuously putting immense amount of carbon into the atmosphere and other warming gases like methane and others. We've known about this since the 80s pretty fully. Every week almost there seems like a new scientific discovery about the granular details. But we've known the basics about this for 40 years and shame on us that we've allowed it to get to this point. Here's the optimism though. Number one, it's smacking us in the face so people are pretty much realizing it. And number two, there's no sense that this has to be some dour, horrible medicine. You know, take your castor oil. You know, kind of a situation. This is economic opportunity. This is an area if we can, you know, where we can. That sounds very
3: capitalistic, by the way. (laughs) Well, that's the system
1: we live in. But look, let's get beyond capitalism, socialism, and other things. We are in a very difficult relationship with China right now right we've let them trade in unfair ways they're rattling sabers they've they've gone back on the agreement about Hong Kong people are worried that they're gonna try to forcibly you know take Taiwan back all this stuff but if you look big picture on climate change we need so many solar panels so many electric vehicles they don't need to sell their stuff here we can both produce way way more than we produce now we must produce way more than right. we do now and distribute them throughout the globe sell them yes it's capitalism but you know we need the us can give a lot of aid and like when i was in congress oh my goodness the anxiety about china the belt and road initiative the way they go out and go around um, you know asia africa latin america and they get these countries in hock, but they help build a lot of infrastructure for them. Well, instead of being anxious about that, what about a big-hearted, broad-shouldered American strategy that doesn't isn't just responsive to China, but actually says, Well, what needs to happen? Right. These poor countries need to switch really fast. A lot of them never had 24... They don't have 24-7 electricity. A lot of villages around the world hardly have it. Just like a lot of places leapfrogged, never really having landlines to being able to put cell towers here and there and having phone service, we could help poor countries around the world get reliable 24-7 electricity, advance their economies, and we would have to produce a lot of Wind towers, nacelles, everything, the blades, everything about yeah. the wind turbines, all about the solar stuff. So, you know, I think this country is waking up, thanks to the pandemic, that, and, and that we, for our national security, for our health security, we have to make a lot more here. And we should do it in collaboration with poorer countries so that they get more jobs, we get more jobs. You know, let's talk about the building trades. A country that's so close to my heart, Haiti, in such dire straits. Haiti is on an island of Hispaniola. It's got tons of coastline. Let's say there's a significant offshore wind capacity in Haiti. Nobody's even, people are just thinking, oh, what about the last earthquake or what about the political situation? But if you think about what needs to happen, think about all the Haitian American members of the operating engineers, the laborers, the carpenters, especially in Florida, New York and, and Massachusetts, but you know, there are over a million Haitian Americans. Imagine if they had the opportunity to go lead construction of renewable energy resources in a country like Haiti and train Haitians to be apprentices so they could build the union there, build middle class jobs there, and do that. But yeah, we, I think we should be really optimistic about what we could do with this moment. Moments of crisis call for real leadership. And if you don't have vision about how to go forward, step aside because we don't have time to mess around here.
0: That was former Congressman Andy Levin. He spoke with WDET's Russ McNamara. That's going to do it for us on Detroit Today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about all the state legislation coming out of Lansing these days. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.